Welcome back to School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello, and we have a sort of special episode here today. We've got a first-timer here on the podcast. Um, we also have two people on the pod, or three people, I guess, including myself, on the podcast for the first time in a while. So it's going to be a packed episode. Uh, it is the international break, so we'll dive into, of course, the Spurs recap, and then dive into a little bit of the Everton uh, outside news, some stuff we don't typically talk about, like the youth and, and, and um, you know, looking forward to the January transfer window. But before we get into all of that, let's uh, introduce our two guests today. Of course, we have Calvin, um, who is joining us. Uh, he's joined us a couple times already, um, but he's joining us again. Calvin, how are you doing today? Hey, Gino. Hi, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and again, we have a first-timer. Uh, goes by the name of Jeff Blunt. He's new to the site, and um, he's now new to the podcast. We appreciate him coming on. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Gino, and, and thanks for uh, inviting me along. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. And, and before we get into anything, let's get up to know a little bit about Jeff. Um, so, Jeff, tell us a little bit about um, kind of where you grew up um, and, and kind of how you became an Everton fan. So, uh, I, I grew up um, perhaps just a little bit over a mile from Goodison Park. Um, and uh, in, in those days, I remember as a child, Long time ago, this, by the way, because I'm uh, I'm knocking on in years, um, but uh, it has its benefits, uh, as in I've seen uh, a fair bit of success, I guess, as well uh, through through those long years. Um, but but yes, I, I grew up uh, in uh, Bootle, which is, as I say, just over a mile from there. I still actually park in Bootle to go and watch the uh, match these days, so it's a, quite a nostalgic trip for me. Um, go, going back there. I don't live there anymore, but uh, it, it's great to go back. And um, how I became an Everton um, supporter, I guess, like everyone else, it wasn't my dad or, or my parents, really, but my brother, my older brother, was an Evertonian. And there was a, a small temptation when I, I didn't know any better to, to go for the, the other side when I was a, a youngster. But um, he, he soon corrected me and, and steered me on the, the right path. And uh, I've been going ever since. Uh, indeed, uh, just to give you an example of how long I've been going, my first game was actually in January 1966, which wow. is a long, long time ago. Um, uh, and um, as a good omen, we won that day and actually went <laughs> on to win the FA Cup that season. So um, I'd like to think I'm a, a good luck omen. But you'd be forgiven for thinking different these days because uh, it, you know it's not as good as it uh, quite. And that that's the sort of thing that that family tradition is quite the the thing over here. Um, you know, my, my son he he never forgives me um, because I, I made him an Evertonian. He'd have been kicked out if he'd have been anything else. <laughs> um, but but he. Uh, he actually, unfortunately, was born in about 80, well, in, in about, he was born in 1982. Um, and, uh, of course, we, we had a good few seasons after that in the mid-80s. But he was too young to really appreciate it and never went, which he, he still never forgives me for either. So it, it's one of those things. It carries on through families. You occasionally get split families over um, in, in Liverpool, but, you know, it, you're either a blue or you're a red, and if you're sensible, you're a blue, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. Was you, were your parents Reds? Were they Liverpool fans? No, no, my, my, just... my dad didn't really follow football. Um, it's just one of those things, really, is um, 
yeah. but uh, when, when we were growing up, uh, you used to think about nothing else. That's, that's all you wanted to do. You wanted to be a professional footballer at that yeah. time and right. all of those good things. Yeah, I must, uh, you know, even, even though he was only born in 1982, at least he got to uh, witness the 95 FA Cup final or, or experience that a little bit. I was born in 95, so I, I was not able to experience that at all. Yeah, you're, you're even unluckier than my son, Dan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just 26 years of absolute misery. Um, but again, I also had the choice to choose that. So really, it's, uh, right. you know, it's, it's, it's been a whole thing. Um, Favorite player over the time, Jeff? Who's been your favorite player? That, that, that's quite an easy one, but it's, it's a name you'll be familiar with, but probably more as a, as a manager. Um, undoubtedly, my favorite player growing up was Howard Kendall. Um, as a player, he was absolutely magnificent. Uh, I know uh, you probably won't have seen that yourself, Gino and Calvin, but um, he, he was an absolute gem uh, amongst that um, fabled um, holy trinity, they used to call him, of yeah. himself, Alan Ball and Colin Harvey. Um, and Ball always used to get, and rightly so, he, he used to get all of the plaudits because he, he was the, the golden mm -hmm. boy. He was the one that shone. He was the one that made the team tick. But Kendall did all yeah. the work. He was the most magnificent <laughs> slide tackler you've ever seen in your life. He, he tackled cleanly. It makes you laugh when you see Mason Holgate's tackle last week, for instance, <laughs> uh, which was more of an assault than a tackle. Um, so, so I think with Kendall, he always came away with the ball. He always stood up after he, he did the slide tackle and he was the most marvellous yeah. volleyer of a ball I've ever seen as well. So uh, in, in those times, I know that's going back a bit. That's going back to the late 60s, or early 70s. But um, undoubtedly for me, Howard Kendall, Awesome. Yeah. And then let's, you know, wrap it up with uh, a memory. What's your favorite memory? I mean, there is a few to choose from uh, for you. So what's, what's your favorite memory? Uh, I, I'd, I'd have to say probably the um, 1985 European Cup Winners Cup final, um, purely because it was, it was just such a magnificent occasion. I didn't unfortunately go to Rotterdam to see it. Um, but uh, seeing it live on television, it was just magnificent. And the way mm -hmm. we, we should have easily won, actually, against Rapid Vienna. But um, I think we, we made a little bit of a meal out of it. But um, I think that the goals and the reactions and the, the crowd hysteria was just something to behold. It was really, really good. And, and that will stick with me long as did the semi-final leading up to it. The semi-final leading up to oh, it yeah. did go to against uh, Bayern Munich. Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. a fantastic game. Uh, even the, the, the bad point in that game was fantastic because um, I think, I can't remember the guy's name who scored the, the goal now, but um, when he went through, it was such a shock. You could have heard a pin drop in, in this really animated crowd. Um, but uh, as we tore back at them, and uh, I think Andy Gray summed it up, he said that the crowd sucked the ball into the Gladys Street end. Um, that was just fantastic. That'll live long. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, Jeff, again, we appreciate you coming on and appreciate yeah. telling you a story. And let's, uh, let's get into a little bit of Everton today now and what's been happening. Um, of course, last week, we, we, last week on the pod, we talked about Tottenham. Everton took on Tottenham, um, a Drew 0-0. Uh, 
Um, not really many great chances for either side. Mason Holgate, the real only, I guess, standout on the stat sheet with the red card uh, in the 92nd minute, or excuse me, the 90th minute. Um, well, yeah, 92nd minute. Um, and um, really, it was just kind of a um, a defensive performance from Everton. Their lineup changed a little bit from the previous game. Um, they went with a um, they went with the back four of Coleman, Godfrey, Keane, Dean, uh, which Dean was back from um, from injury. Pickford, of course, in net. Anthony Gordon started. Uh, Fabian Delft started in the place of uh, Jean Philippe Gabamin. Um, and then, of course, Allen, Damari Gray, Andros Townsend, and then Richarlison up top started. Um, so a couple people back from injuries. Um, Calvin, we'll start with you. What was your thought when the lineup came out? It, so it was interesting, right? Uh, we, we, we knew that Davies and Gubamin were not going to work as one-for-one replacements. Um, so, you know, I think the question there was going to be, was Rafa going to try once again with a two-man midfield with Delft there? Or was it going to be the three-man with Townsend sort of pinching in? Um, so I, I think there was still it was still up in the air when the lineup came out. But I think as soon as the whistle went, it was pretty clear we were going to be that compact three-man midfield to try and compensate for obviously losing Dokore. So uh, I, I I wasn't displeased. I, I thought it was the best lineup we could have put out, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, Jeff, I agree with. I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I wasn't displeased at all when I saw the lineup, and and uh, I must just call out uh, Andros Townsend because I've never ever seen. I've seen him a number of years. I've never seen him play centre mid before ever, and uh, right. I think it, it's part of the respect that he has for. Uh, for Rafa Benitez and how long he's worked with him, yeah. that he, he would yeah. just play any position he's asked. But I've never seen him play yeah. that, but he actually did a sterling job in terms of uh, just yeah. nailing down inside of uh, Anthony Gordon. Thought yeah. He did really yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one thing, and we talked about this on last week's episode, I think just Andrews Townsend's such a hard worker. So having him in that midfield to go along with Allen and, and Delph, who played a, a really good game again, um, you know, I think that that really helped and it allowed more freedom for Gray and Gordon on the outside. So um, definitely, but definitely a good lineup. I think a lot of people were worried he was going to go with the Wobi again. Uh, obviously, we were worried about the Dean situation oh. with weathering, whether he was going to be able to start. Thankfully, he was. And then, of course, for Charleston starting up, up top was, I'm sure, a, a sigh of relief for many uh, Everton fans. Um, Tottenham, of course, had the new manager, all the shining toys, everything, everybody's been praising them all week. Um, my brother and father are Tottenham fans, as I said most, multiple times on the podcast. My brother was ranking on me all week, Antonio Conte this, Antonio Conte that. He's the chosen one, you know, and um, it was nice to stick it to him a little bit. But even just getting a draw, even though, as we'll get into, there were some other factors. But um, the first half, kind of bland. Um, not really much there you know, thoughts from you guys on the first half. And, um, I mean, did Everton have a solid first half? Um, what were your kind of thoughts on, on that? Because really all the action took place in the second half, and we'll get to that. Jeff. I, I thought it was a much improved performance, to be absolutely honest with you. I, I had the misfortune, as you you guys will be aware, to, to go to the Watford game. And um, I, I was lower than a snake's belly. 
after that. It was really poor. <laughs> and to, to see the, the team and uh, react and come out and fire um, w- without actually doing much damage was a, a real, it, it was really good to, to see. Um, I think one of the, the, the problems and the, the big disappointment that I have is that in, in spite of what you've said, Gino, I think um, the, the Tottenham team were there for the taking and uh, we, we didn't do it. And that, that's what annoys me most about all of that. And we didn't create many clear chances. And that, that, that's what disappoints me. Um, yeah. I, I think that Conte hadn't had a chance to implement any of his plans. Um, the, the players before Conte arrived had looked clueless, to be perfectly honest, as to where they were being asked to play. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that they come up against Everson, the purpose of Goodison Park, and we didn't actually nail them. That's that's the only regret I have. Uh, we we should have done because there's the penalty incident, obviously yes. that we'll no doubt talk about. Yeah. But, uh, we we didn't create really enough clear cut chances, and we we certainly didn't take any. Calvin. Yeah, I, I I'd echo that too, right? I I think when you when you sit back now after the game and look back at, at just the quality of the opposition, there we we should have won that game. That that was not a top six side we played against. I mean, sure they had all the names, right? But they did not play like a team. They were not cohesive. Um, you know, uh, I think Jeff nailed it, right? Conte probably had not had enough time to work with that cast. I also think one of the other factors which really we should have taken advantage of was it, you know, Spurs had played on Thursday, right? Because they play in the conference league yeah. and it, they really looked, they looked like they had kind of given their all on Thursday and then they were kind of all exhausted or kind of, you know, naturally they're going to be tired. Um, yeah. Not, I don't remember off the top of my head how many of that lineup, you know, on Thursday played on Sunday too. But we, we should have won that game. I, I think with even our normal lineup, we win that game. Like, easy, right? I think if, if DCL's in there, if Joker is playing that game, we're winning this one. I just, it, it was disappointing the way the, the sort of the game went. Um, so, yeah. again, overall, when we look back at it, say, yeah, we played a top six side, we didn't lose, we'll take the point. But in all honesty, if you, if you take that label away and you see the quality of the opponents we played on the pitch, we should have won that one. Yeah, and, and just looking back, trying to get an, a feel for, for who played in that match against, um, against Vitesse, I think it is. Um, I mean, the same side, I think, is it's exactly the same side. Um, Lucas, Son, Kane, everybody who played in that match played in, in the match against Tottenham. So. Okay. Great point to point out there because you're right. I mean, it is only, what, two full days of rest after that match. And that was a difficult Pretty match much, for them. Yeah. They, they went up 3 nothing and gave up yeah. two goals in the second half. A couple red cards in that match. Um, so yeah. it, it was definitely a difficult, uh, a difficult match for them. Um, I think the big thing for me that stood out, and, and, and uh, Jeff, you pointed it out, was just kind of the, um, the bounce back. You know, obviously – there was about 60 minutes of soccer over the course or football over the course of two games, the last 15 minutes of the Watford game and the first 45 minutes of the, the Wolves game where we looked absolutely in shambles. And then the second half of the Wolves game, we picked it up and, and, and got, uh, got a goal. And honestly, I felt like if things bounced our way, we could have even tied it up. Um, and in this game, we were significantly more defensively sound than really 
we've seen in a few weeks, which was very good. And, you know, cause without Decore, without Mina, without DCL, really the spine of our entire, everything that we do. Um, it was good to see us able to, to kind of manage them defensively and not really give them too many chances. There was a couple breakdowns where, you know, a couple times where Kane played a ball over the top, I think to Reggion and he almost had a chance, but, um, but nothing really too crazy for, for the Tottenham side. And, and I think, again, I think whether Tottenham were for the taking or not, or whether, you know, we played well or not, there was a chance to win and we were given the chance to win. And it was taken away from us very, very quickly by VAR. Let's talk about that penalty decision. Um, I mean, Richarlison goes and tries to get around Loris. I've watched the replay multiple times. I, I can't see any clear and obvious, and I think that's the point we need to point out here, clear and obvious evidence that the ball was touched by Loris before he touched Richarlison. And um, somehow the ref overturns the decision. Chris Kavanaugh, I mean, obviously he's had a number of times where Everton fans have not been happy with him, but this game specifically was not good at all, I don't think. Um, Jeff, your opinions on the penalty, and even after the penalty decision when Richarlison had the ball and they stopped play. So, so yeah, you're quite right to add that on, actually, because that was ridiculous as well. But in, in terms of the actual penalty decision, it's really clear to me uh, and I, I'm, I've tried to watch it uh, really slow down. The sequence is as follows. Richarlison touches the ball and uh, uh, Loris brings him down, touches him, and he goes down. The, there isn't a middle in between that where Richarlison touched the ball, Loris touched yeah. the ball, and then he brings him down. And mm-hmm. that wasn't the case at all. But, uh, and for me, that's absolutely crystal clear. Uh, and why, when he looks at the the, the different uh, angles on, on the uh, playback, he couldn't see that, I, I really don't know, other than he didn't want to see that. Um, as, as for the, the uh, follow-on from that, uh, I, I honestly can't believe it, because actually, um, and, and some people may say for a change, because he, he does go down and stay down normally, uh, Richarlison. Uh, when he did go down, he got up. And he went to the side of the goal and he actually had a shooting opportunity as the referee blew the whistle. Um, so, so it wasn't just a question of giving us the ball back. Um, we actually had a chance to, to actually take, play advantage. The referee had a chance to play advantage with, with that even. Um, so there's all kinds of things he got wrong. He had a bad day. He had a stinker at the office. Uh, <laughs> Awful day, yeah. Yeah, Calvin, go ahead. I was just going to add, that entire penalty incident was a triple failure, right? So, yeah, yeah, Jeff, you you caught on the first one, right? So, he he did see the penalty, right? That was the first decision. Secondly, he stopped play while Richardson had the ball, so didn't play advantage. And then to make all of this worse, after the replay, he actually put a drop ball. That's not a drop ball. Why is that a drop ball? This is ridiculous. Like, Kavanaugh was... He had, he had, a, he had what, what we like to say, he had a mare, right? He was terrible. And that was not the only time of the day that he just completely missed things. The game got really chippy in the second half. There was all sorts yeah. of uh, pretty nasty-looking tackles from both sides, right? And, and he just lost control of the game. And 
I, I'm just incredibly surprised there's not been any repercussions. Uh, I would be very disappointed if Kavanaugh actually is refereeing in the Premier League again this week, this coming weekend. But again, there's no checks and balances at, at, in the refs. So I, this is, I'm just going to get very aggravated about the refereeing here. Yeah, I mean, I'm watching the replay again over here. I just, and there's a very clear on Twitter, somebody blew it up real close. And, and obviously they can't do that in, in real time, but somebody blew it up real close. It's, it's very, when you blow it up and really look at it, it he, Lloris doesn't get even an inch of his finger on the ball, not even close. So, but the big problem for me is VAR is supposed to be used for clear and obvious evidence for overturning. Right. There was absolutely no clear and obvious. You could watch that replay a hundred times and you could come and ask a hundred different people and the answers would be probably split 50-50. And honestly, if they weren't split 50-50, they'd be 75-25 in Everton's favor. Um, there's no way right. that you can possibly overturn that penalty. So once you call the penalty, that's, I, I, just, I don't understand how you can call it off after that. Then the follow-up, Richarlison has the ball, has a shooting chance. I mean, there's nobody even close to the net. He doesn't give, he doesn't give advantage play there. Blows the whistle, which, yeah. again, in time, you're like, okay, well, I mean, we have the penalty, so that's okay. But then things follow up, and then he gives a drop ball back to them after that. And it's like, it's just, it's so hard to comprehend what, um, I mean, what, what, how you come up with that decision after making the original penalty call. You cannot, there's no way that you can come up with that conclusion after the original penalty call. So um, in my opinion, I mean, I think in a lot of Evertonians opinion, and I think the objective opinion should be, I mean, I, being objective, I mean, we're yeah. a lot of the time we can have a bias, but I think in this specific incident, we're being as objective as we can be. It's, it was a clear and obvious uh, it was a clear penalty, and there was no clear and obvious evidence to overturn that. Uh, he got it wrong. And, and from there, Everton kind of really played, played well the rest of the match, closed it out. There wasn't really too many Tottenham chances. Let's talk about the Holgate red card for a second. Holgate clears the ball, um, goes to clear the ball. I don't know whether he slips or follows through, whatever. His cleat ends up in the back of... I forget whose calf. Um, Hoiberg. It's Hoiberg. Hoiberg's calf. And um, he's already on – was that a straight red? I don't think he was straight on red. yellow. Before, it was a straight yeah. red. It was a he straight red. He got a yellow red. on the spot and then a straight red after review. Yep. Yes. And, and this is Holgate. Who, Holgate did not start the match. He came on, um, you know, in the match. Gets the straight red. What were your your guys' thoughts on the penalty or on the on the red card, Jeff? You've already kind of given us your thoughts, so why don't you just expand a little bit? So um, I actually, uh, uh, without putting too much of a downer on Mason Holgate, I know everyone tries the the best. He's not my favourite at the moment um, because if you do remember in the Wolves game, he, he rashly almost gave a penalty away, which was actually on right and bang on the edge of the area. Um, again, an unnecessary tackle. I actually personally believe that, that he meant to follow through on that, um, that he, he was a bit irritated with things. He may be uh, not starting in the first team. He's, he's a bit uh, upset about that. He's wanting to prove a point. He's wanting to um, be, uh, you know, a, a big, tough uh, challenge on uh, Hoiberg, 
and I think he followed through deliberately and it was a des deserved straight red. I, th I think the boy occasionally, he, he, for me, his concentration levels are poor anyway, uh, which is one of the main things uh, wrong with, uh, with Mason. Um, but I also think, and one word sums him up for me, and that is reckless. Uh, so, you know, I have little sympathy for him. He put the match in danger for his colleagues, so it, he wasn't actually thinking about the team yeah. and how uh, that might affect. His bat is more almost on the edge of the area. It was so poor. Calvin, your thoughts? <laughs> so, uh, you know, two, two different sort of things here. So, absolutely agree with you, Jeff. Uh, Mason Hallgate is a reckless player. Uh, he plays irresponsibly. I think when you're young, you can kind of play with that, that, I don't know, abandon, if you will. But at this point, he is not a youngster, right? Uh, he's had plenty of chances to establish himself in the side. You would think he should be more responsible. Um, he hasn't been. And I, I, I definitely think he's a candidate for the door um, right now with our defense uh, or I guess defensive core being as stretched as it is. He's a, he's a backup and that's fine. That That's all Holgate, right? I, again, I think we've, we've talked about that one enough. Yeah. Whether I mean, he meant that. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Come, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say, so whether he meant that or not, I don't know. Right. It, it, it is the way he plays. Um, I think there are going to be challenges of that nature in football. It is a contact sport. Um, it's debatable whether Hoiberg also went in there knowing he was going to be second to the ball to see if he could win something. I don't know, right? I'm not here to judge intentions. Mm -hmm. I just think the way the game is refereed nowadays leaves a little too much to doubt, right? In the past, I think the rule was pretty clear. If you play the ball, that is the primary goal, right? If you win yeah. the ball, if the other guy gets his leg amputated, unfortunately, oh, well, too bad, right? Nowadays, it seems it's not as clear, right? So you could win the ball, but in the follow-through or if in the process you also take out your opponent, somehow that's not being judged as a clean tackle, right? Where, where, this, where I was livid during this game was that there seemed to be two different interpretations of this same rule, right? Yeah. If Holgate should be penalized for taking out Hoiberg in his follow-through, even though he won the ball, then why was that not a penalty when Loris took out Richarlison, even yeah. if Kavanaugh and John Moss and VAR thought he might have touched the ball with his fingertips? Yeah, because right? there's clear contact. So, again, right. So, again, you can't have two takes on this, right? So, if yeah. Loris gets the ball but takes out Richarlison, is that a penalty? And if it's not a penalty, then I think, at worst, Holgate gets a yellow card for recklessness, but he did win the ball. Mm. So, the, 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 this inconsistency from... From, and, and it's not just Kavanaugh, it's Kavanaugh, it's John Moss, it's Stockley Park, it's the whole refereeing situation. There's just every week, from game to game, things change. We watched the Liverpool-West Ham game, and Aaron Cresswell did something worse than Holgate did. 
And upon VAR review, did he even get a yellow card? I don't think so. He, he went right over the ball. His foot bounced over the ball. And I think he went into Henderson's thigh and left like cleat marks all over his thigh. And upon review, that was deemed as okay, unfortunate. So this inconsistency, I think it drives coaches, Barry. Um, uh, to his credit, Rafa yeah. actually did say that he thought Hallgate was reckless and deserved it. So credit to Rafa on that one. But I just the refereeing needs to get sorted out. Yeah, I mean, I look again looking through the replays again. Um, originally, I, I thought momentum, and I thought he slipped. But looking through, I've, I've watched the replays again um, a couple times, and it looks like he has his left foot planted, and then as he follows through, kind of pushes off that left foot to push him forward. So I, I can see the – I think that there's evidence there that it was a reckless challenge, and maybe he could have pulled out of it to not go all the way through with the, cleat, with the cleats, cleats up, um, you know, boots up, and, and into the back of, of Hoiberg. But I think that you're right when you say that there's inconsistencies with the refereeing because there's been multiple times where players have done that. There was evidence, I think, within this own game where there was a follow-through that ended up in the back of somebody or whatnot that was not given a, a, a card at all or the Cresswell situation. So I think the problem is the inconsistencies uh, with throughout, throughout the calls. I mean, I, I understand it. I think... Again, originally it looked like he slipped, but watching it in slow motion, it looks like he might push off that left foot to you know, kind of propel himself forward a little bit more, which, again, I can understand the red card there. But, again, it's you know, whenever you see somebody roll over the ball, it's a red card. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is. Of course, Jagielka back in the day it was, but Aaron Questwell today <laughs> yeah. isn't. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a problem because how are you supposed to know – like, how, how are we supposed to judge these? And it's, it's basically up to the referee. And, and there's no, you know, there's no referee's report or there's no, um, you know, accountability for the referees who make poor decisions. So, um, you know, yeah. at least that we know of, to the public. They have their own system, from what I understand, of points and all that. But, um, but, but yeah, Calvin, go ahead. One last thought on this one, you know, while we're still talking about referees, mm -hmm. right? So, obviously, referees exist in pretty much every sport, right? And, and one, of the, one of the key things we have seen in other sports to increase that transparency has been that the interaction that happens between the TV ref or the VAR ref and the on-pitch ref is that that is actually played live. Right, and and that playing that interaction live is is actually what a lot of fans have been asking for. We see it in cricket, we see it in rugby, um, even in American football. A, a lot of the interactions, uh, actually, maybe not in American football, but um, definitely in cricket and, and rugby, as there is a review or a TV review, that conversation is played live, whether it's on the TV commentary or on, on in the stadium as well. And I honestly think that conversation there, we need to hear that. I, I think that's going to hold refs accountable because there, then there is no, it removes, whether or not there is something going on with the refs, it removes all doubt, right? And I think that, that's the piece that football needs to take a look at about that, that, that conversation between the VAR ref and the on-pitch ref, that needs to be publicized. 
No, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about let's you know move away from from the bad of this game, or at least the bad. We you know, honestly can't say. I don't think you could say too much bad about Everton in this one. But let's talk about some of the real bright spots. We've talked about Townsend a little bit. Let's talk about Anthony Gordon. Um, he's been, um, I mean, in my opinion, he's had a really solid uh, start to the season. This game in particular, I thought he was, he was very good. What were your guys' thoughts? Jeff, we'll start with you. So, um, yes, uh, Anthony Gordon. Um, I, I've, I've watched him for a couple of years now. Um, when he first uh, broke through and I saw him in the under-23s, I thought, what a player this boy is going to be. Um, he's never going to pile on uh, muscle because he's, a, he's a, a bit skinny, to, to, to use an expression, uh, still to play football. But actually, uh, I think the last couple of games, there's a certain belief whether he's got that himself or that's been instilled in him by the, the management there, by uh, either Rafa Benitez or Duncan Ferguson. I think what it is, people are beginning to take the time out to develop the player. And, and um, whereas he's had a couple of limited opportunities under Ancelotti and, and prior to that even, I think he may have played under Marco Silva briefly. Um, I, I think now they're beginning to invest the time in actually trying to see this through. And I think he's responding to it. I think he's a confidence player. I think he needs to know that you're going to give him a chance. You're not going to hook him after... Uh, you know, 50 minutes, 60 minutes. I know he did get pulled off against Watford and the crowd were unhappy about that. And there was a, a big Ferrari about whether or not Rafa should have done that. I, I actually was at that game and he did look tired to me, um, though I, I do understand. I think he's coming along nicely now. He's playing wide right, which isn't his natural position. He's more of a wide left, though he's a right footer. Um, but but he's really beginning to to show now what we've thought that he might show for the last few years, which is great news for Everson, especially being a homegrown boy. Absolutely, Calvin. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I, it, it's interesting. I think Rafa's take on Gordon was a little different than what I think we had heard from Carlo. Right? Carlo had always mentioned that yeah, uh, you know, Anthony has a lot of potential. He sees a bright future for him. Whereas Rafa has actually talked very specifically that he thinks Gordon needs to work on the physical side of the game, right? And not necessarily just building on, on his frame, which is very slight. And I think he is, he's only going to get as big as he's going to get. I think that's it. But I, I, think, I think the stamina piece is what Rafa was really referring to. And, and, and you're right, Jeff. Uh, you know, it, it was strange to see him withdrawn during that Watford game, but he was gassed. And keeping him on would have would have meant basically not having a man on that left wing. So I I don't disagree with where Rafa was going with that, but he, he's coming along though, right? He finished his first full 90 for Everton, the senior senior team against Spurs. And then didn't get much of a break because he played midweek for the England under 21 and he scored two goals, right? So, like you said, Jeff, he's, he's a confidence player and I think his confidence has got to be like sky high at this point, right? Getting those goals, he's come so close to getting his first Everton goal, right? Yeah. Uh, at least league goal, anyway. I, I thought that was a brilliant header. It was, yes. He should have really scored that one. So he's, he's coming along. I think he's going to be just fine. He's got to just build that stamina, continue to work on the physical aspect of the game. 
But I, I, as far as his playing style and mentally where he is, I think he's in a really good place. And I'm expecting to see a very bright second half of the season for him. Yeah, And I, and I just think lingering uh, just very briefly on the stamina issue, uh, like in any sport with any sportsman, uh, you only develop stamina by going through that pain barrier to, to actually get there. Now, hooking someone after 60, 70 minutes, you, you will take an eternity to reach 90. Um, sometimes you have <laughs> to have him gassed on the pitch to actually realise what he has to do. And, and I think that, that's right. where the stage that we're at now. And that's, you'll, I think we'll see him spring on from here. Yeah, that must have been uh, what Rafa was doing with Rondon for four weeks. <laughs> Needed to get him 360 minutes. Um, no, but um, <laughs> but um, Gordon, no, absolutely. I, I think the big thing, and, and I, I agreed with him pulling Gordon off because, again, I said this, I think, on every podcast that Iwobi comes on. I think that a lot of managers see Iwobi, whether he is or not, as more of a defensive-minded or, or has the defensibility mm-hmm. as a winger that – Gordon does not have right now. And I think that's been one of the points that has been emphasized. Um, Gordon's lack of defensive ability or, or kind of still needed to grow in that area, as you guys have mentioned. Um, but for me, th- this season, the big thing for me over the past couple of seasons was when he got put into the position of playing against top talent, against these better competition, the, the Premier League, he didn't really seem like he made too much of an impact offensively was kind of off the ball a lot, you know, kind of getting the ball, passing it off, not really getting in good positions. Um, but this season, he's been so attack-minded, been in great positions, been powering forward, been really leading the Everton attack in so many different ways. Um, very similarly to how Damari Gray has uh, developed over the course of, of this season as well. So um, I don't know what happens when Dominic Calvert-Lewin comes back because then you have to worry about Townsend, Gray, Gordon, um, for Charleston and all those players and how you want to mix them in. But that's a good problem to have. And it's, for, a, it's, a very, it's a very nice worry, Gina. Yes, it's a very nice, good, very nice problem to have considering our situation with wingers over the past couple of years. And maybe we still need one or two more in just to build that depth. But um, really excited to see what he has um, going forward. Um, I do want to touch on one last thing um, before we move on here. Um, and Calvin, you can kick off this conversation because it is a conversation about Luca Dean um, and how he has kind of not provided the attacking presence that we typically have seen from him. Yeah. Luca Dean, of course, coming out this season saying, um, or this week, this past week, saying um, that he's been asked to do more defensive duties. Maybe talk about some of the stats that you found um, and and kind of why we haven't seen that because. You know, in a game like this where we're getting forward, you, you know, with Damari Gray, you hope that link-up play is, you know, solid. And, and he just hasn't really been able to find it this yeah. season. Talk a little bit about that and some of what you found. Sure. Well, so I think the narrative this season has been that Dini is declining, right? That mm-hmm. because he's not our primary assist provider, our primary key passes provider, um, because he's not as involved with the attack, so therefore Dinier is um, you know, on the decline, and therefore Everton needs to be looking for a new left-back. And you know, I think to some extent, you, you're right. On the eye test, yeah, you're absolutely right. Dinier is not as involved with the attacks, with the build-ups, um, but that's not his role. And, and I'm actually really glad Dinier came out and said that, because 
yeah, Rafa has asked him. The defense has been particularly shaky this season, right? That constant revolving door of um, Holgate in and out of the squad, Keane having good games and bad games, Mina being injured and then back, injured back, um, Godfrey with his COVID issues, right? He's, he's not being the same player. So it absolutely makes sense, and especially on the other side, with Coleman being in and out of the side as well, right? So, yeah, it makes sense that Rafa leans on Digne to be that stable presence, and, 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 and the stats actually prove it. Um, I know there's always this disconnect between the fans who want to believe the eye test and the stats are just for nerds, but very, very often, and especially in football, there are a lot of metrics that will tell you what what and they will validate what you're seeing and that's what we're seeing we're seeing Dini's attacking numbers down um the the criticism that he's received that really gets my blood boiling is that he is not the same defender he's been and that he gets beat way too easily true partly because when he does get beaten it's very clear right uh he, he has a weakness against pacey wingers right so Ismail Assar of Watford went around him, right? Um, whenever we have played Wolves, Traore seems to target Dinier because, again, for sheer pace, yes, Dinier is not that good. What people forget is, apart from those high-profile misses, he is absolutely solid, and the numbers back that up. He is among the top 25 percentile of any fullback in the Premier League and has been ever since he's joined Everton. Just because, again, when he does get beat, it does probably end up in a goal. So therefore, that's the one that sticks in everyone's memories. And it's very easy to forget all the good things he does defensively. Believe it or not, for his size, he is one of the best aerial fullbacks in the league. He wins just about every aerial challenge. For a fullback, that's impressive, right? So again, it's very easy to criticize Vinia because he's not as involved in the attack. But Everton have a lot more sources for the attack this season, right? Yeah. Townsend being as involved as he is, Gray being as involved as he is, Gordon coming along as he has. We've not had that input in previous seasons. So Dini was our primary source of attacking, uh, whether it's crosses, key passes, all of that. And, and, and so therefore, it's fine. You want to have a balanced side. You don't want to be that Everton can only attack from the left, right? So mm-hmm. I just, the, the criticism of Dini, it, it just, it galls me. It, it really does. It, it, it's completely unnecessary. Jeff. So Lucas Dini, uh, I, I I think he's had better seasons than he than he's having this season. I think I think that's fair to say. Um, uh, but you you look back to when he first came in to replace Leighton Baines, the legend, and uh, everyone doubted whether he could do it, and he actually absolutely floored people. Uh, he was that good in his first season. I I think. Um, Regardless almost of uh, whether he's defensively sound or, or not, or whether he's having good games or, or bad games, let, let me just put one thing to you. And that is since the departure of a, a certain James Rodriguez, uh, who took uh, virtually every corner kick, free kick, etc., etc., uh, Lucas Dini is, is one of the true, one of the few true natural left footers that we've got it in the side. So when we need an in-swinger, when, I know uh, Andros Townsend can do it, 
But, yeah. um, you know, we're, we're looking at someone who can get... And Townsend very rarely plays down the left-hand side. Yeah. So, so you're looking at some of the one of the few people who can actually deliver a good ball in there. And he has done a good few this season, actually. Um, I, I think... He can stop more crosses coming in. It's he's a better attacker than he is a defender, uh, in in my opinion. But I, I'm not going to hang him out to dry. I, I think we we've got way bigger problems than Lucas Dini. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I think that the, the the numbers really the numbers that that Calvin put in our Slack chat really kind of opened the eyes of at least myself to kind of and, and even just Dean coming out and saying what he said about what Rafa has asked him to do, I think that opens the eyes of, of kind of the situation why we're not seeing those attacking returns. I would like to see against maybe lesser sides like the Watfords and like the Norwiches and, and Burnleys and whatnot, him get forward more often. I would hope that Rafa is telling him to do so so we can get those crosses in. But I think as, as, as I think Calvin mentioned, um, we're getting those crosses still. You know, uh, we may not be getting the in-swingers like we have in recent past from, from the left-footed Dina, but we're getting crosses from Damari Gray, from Andros Townsend. Players, we haven't had, I mean, let's be honest here, Richarlison is not a good crosser of the ball, and neither is Awobi. So we haven't had, and James Rodriguez was available for about 25% of our matches last season. So, um, you know, we haven't had a real winger that was able to whip in those crosses. And, and as much as people love Coleman, hasn't really come from over there. So really, our only option for crosses to get a good ball in the box was Luca Digne. And I think that Everton and Rafa Benitez have now give, been given Rafa sees that, you know, okay, we have that ability now. We don't need him to get as forward as much. We need him more in the defense. So we're going to ask him to play a little bit more defensively. Um, and for the most part, Again, like you said, Calvin, he ranks very highly in a lot of those defensive categories that you want him to rank highly in. Yes, there's those, those major, major mishaps that you just can't wrap your head around. But it's, you know, again, there's, you know, other factors that may play into that. Maybe not having as defensive wingers, the center backs not being on par if Godfrey's playing on that left side or whatever. He hasn't, obviously hasn't had a banner year. But, um, but I think that, it kind of opens your eyes a lot about what Dean has done this season. And, and really he has performed better than I think a lot of us have, have really realized because we're looking for the attacking prospect and not as much the defensive prospect. And we only remember the, the bad defensive plays. So um, I think it's good. I think that the, it means the Everton team is in a good spot that they don't need those crosses to come in from there uh, every single week. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll follow that and see how things progress. Maybe he gets a little bit more attacking. Um, but, um, but let's, let's take a quick break here. Um, let's, um, let's take a quick break and we'll get into the youth, um, the youth teams and the UA teams, the U23s after we come back. All right, we're back and we're talking Everton Youth Academy. We don't really talk much about this, so I think it's good to get into it a little bit. Obviously there's a few names that stand out to a lot of people, but we're going to go a little bit more in-depth to talk about the U18s and the U23s. So let's start with the U18s. And uh, Jeff and Calvin, you kind of take the reins on this one um, as I haven't followed them as much this season. But um, let's start with the U18s. Jeff, um, you want to start with how they performed at least so far this season? Sure, yeah, no problem, Gino. Uh, so 
In terms of league, standing in a, a league of 14 teams, the eighth, so they're pretty much bang mid-table. Mid, uh, mid um, they've had a bit of a, an up-and-down season, uh, perhaps not surprisingly uh, that they're playing probably 50% first-year scholars and 50% second-year scholars. So you're talking about 16-year-olds coming into play in an under-18 team. Uh, against perhaps 18-year-olds. That's a big, big gap for, for them to, to bridge. Um, so uh, I think that there's a couple of results that they've had. So they've actually been uh, beaten quite heavily three times this season. Uh, a 4-1, a 3-1 and a 4-0. Uh, unfortunately, the 4-0 was against Liverpool, which uh, I can barely bear to say. Um, but but So they've lost... 11 goals in those three games. Um, now, that can be that heads go down when you, you're talking about 16-year-old kids that you know are, are getting beaten. That happens in any sport, uh, I guess. Um, but on the flip side of that coin, in the nine games that they've actually played, so three games with heavy defeats, in these six games that they didn't lose, uh, three of which they won, they only conceded four goals. So... That they've flicked between being very tight and uh, being able to uh, withstand pressure to uh, what looks on paper at least to be a bit of a collapse in, in a couple of games. So it's just things as kids learn the game and learn the game professionally. I'm, I'm sure these sorts of things happen. Yeah. I think for, for, for me, looking at the uh, under 18s, um, part of the problem for me, looking at the, the stats, is that uh, they, they don't seem to have a natural uh, sort of centre-forwards striker who's going to bag them uh, a goal a game or a goal every other game. Uh, to, to look at the leading scorers within uh, this particular team, there are four players. They played nine games, and there are four players tying on two goals each um, during uh, this period and only one of them is a striker. So whilst the goals, the, the, you can't have it every way, but whilst the goals are nicely spread around the team, you would be hoping for someone actually at the top end of the pitch knocking these goals in and full of confidence, and they don't appear to have that. And I think that's the reason why they're, they're mid-table, which, which is a shame, really, because from what I've seen of them, they've got some good kids coming through. Uh -huh. No, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... I wonder, I want to hear your opinion on this, Jeff. Um, we've talked a lot about the U23s and, and kind of how that's been handled and some of the younger players that still have, you know, whether they're up 20, getting near 23, 24, 25, 26, they still don't really have a place in the club. Ha have you seen maybe, maybe, maybe these first and second year, second year scholars, are they coming into the U18s because we've seen more of a push to get the 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds into that U23 side or into the, in the loans or professional sides. Um, do you feel like that's maybe a reason we're starting to see some of those first and second year scholars? Because I feel like our youth development has kind of lacked a little bit. Um, and I was interested to hear your opinion on, on how things are going in that. that I, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, there's something not quite right with the, the development side. Uh, I think that there's a few circumstances here that don't lend itself to don't lend themselves to us producing uh, good teams at both levels under 18s and 23s, and that's perhaps because 
there was a quite a mass exodus at the end of last season at the mm. 23 level, uh, whereby people who'd been hanging around the club for quite a long time, uh, names that were never really going to establish themselves in the first team, but nevertheless were un- under yeah. contract to, to Everson. Everson played them. They, they actually helped the under-23s achieve good positions last year. They disappeared. And when they disappeared, um, what happened was we, we couldn't bring, for obvious reasons, a whole load of new players in. So we had to promote people who them, themselves had only just started really in earnest last mm-hmm. year. And some of those, there's probably about five or six of those have come in and played regularly every game at the under-23 level. That has a knock-on effect on the under-18s. Yeah. So you've got even younger players coming through who probably would have been on the bench, quite quite honestly, in the under-18 games. And therefore, the whole thing has been a bit, a bit of a calamity, really, in terms yeah. of people playing it beyond their age level. Might do them good in the long run, uh, but re- results won't be pretty in the meanwhile. Well, that's that's what I that's what I wonder because in 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 my opinion, I feel like those and I don't know how you feel, um, Jeff, but those players like Beningami, like Kieran Dowell, like those sort of players that have hung around and just haven't made it and haven't gotten on loans and stuff like that. I mean, those players, in my opinion, should have been on the way out. I, I think that they should have should have been shipped out because they had no place by the age by that age nowadays. You're you're either in a first team or you're on loan somewhere. And, and that wasn't the case. Um, is, would your opinion be that it would be, you know, how, how, where do you fall on that topic? I guess. I mean, where do you fall on, on the 18s, you know, maybe some of these U18 players getting shots at the U23s because 18 and 19 and 20 year olds are out on loan. So, so I, I think um, I, I agree with you that uh, I think people hung around too long. And if you're not going to make it by the time you're not going to get some minutes by the time you're 20, 21, why, why on earth are you still at the club? Mm-hmm. Out of self-respect and wanting to promote uh, yourself into a, a position where you could get a, a club and get regular game time, you would yeah. surely want to move yourself to, to, to do that. that. That didn't happen with a lot of players. And, and I think that the knock-on effect of that is that they sometimes block uh, the development of uh, younger kids coming exactly, through. Yeah. The, 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 the thing this season is it's been a bit ramshackle and that we've had to promote so many from the different levels, gotcha. one up, to, to actually uh, field a team. Uh, yeah. Now, now uh, last season, uh, we, we had the likes of the players that you've mentioned um, around and they, they guided and they actually uh, helped the, the, the team achieve some results but that they were never going to help themselves get a, a proper job uh, in, in, a, in another club. And likewise, uh, that they didn't particularly help uh, their colleagues by keeping them down, suppressing them. So mm-hmm. I, think that, I think there's a few fundamental problems with the, the traffic through the uh, under-18s through to the uh, under-23s. I, I, I just think there's something wrong. I think it needs a shake-up, if I'm honest. Uh, Calvin, uh, your thoughts on, on this whole situation? Yeah, so a couple of things. So uh, first of all, uh, again, uh, Jeff, we, we really appreciate the work you do on, on the website. Uh, you are our sole sort of uh, coverage guy for the under-18 under and the under-23 teams. And we've really enjoyed having your analysis of the, of the youth games. I think it does give us a more well-rounded club perspective. So thank you for your work on that. Uh, 
so Jeff, and this is going to be a question for, for both of you guys, right? You know, we've in the past had discussions about what is the purpose of the under 23 team, yeah. right? And I, you know, I, I think to, for the most of us, it's the sole purpose of the under 23s needs to be as a feeder stream for the first team, right? And it's either giving players who show potential to be first team players um, that, that outlet. And there's a bunch of other players who we know are never going to be Premier League caliber players. Yeah. But at the same time, they, 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 they are good enough that they give you the amount of right results because you do need some level of success or else you just get relegated down the ranks in the under-23s, right? Yeah. So what, is, what do you feel, guys, is the purpose of the under-18 team? Jeff, you want to take that first? Yeah. Uh, so the under eighteens, the, the under eighteens um, it, 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 is a true development um, team in, in my view. It, it's one where you you do get the very talented, but sometimes wholly uh, not not grown men coming in to uh, yeah. play football, and uh, you know with, they've been hand selected by uh, Everson to to come along, and they, they've probably had a lot of them since the age of five. And they, they've grown right through the ranks. And the under 18 for me is one where that, that age between 16 and 18, when people are still physically growing, is that they, they actually develop uh, that uh, physicality and also yeah. the mentality to, to deal with what they may be faced in, in years to come. Yeah. So it is a, a prelude. It's a true development team. Um, I, I just don't think it's handled particularly well. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, I think, and and I just to bring a little bit of the, uh, I guess the American aspect into this with Christian Pulisic and how he's developed. He came out and said that specifically those sixteen to eighteen year old years, that the 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 age ages from sixteen to eighteen were the most important years of his development to become to the player he is. And I think you're right. I think I think in my opinion. Um, development over results. I think that the club has kind of prioritized results over development over the past few years. And that's why we're in the situation we're in right now. Um, And I think that you're right, 16 and 18, let's get them in. Let's get them to understand the plan that we have and what we want for them. And then 18, 19, you know, hopefully by 18, 19, you're playing in the U23s and developing there and then maybe getting a loan out and and getting to, to a championship side or a league one side. And then from there, you develop into a first-team prospect by 2021. I think that should be the pipeline for Everton prospects coming through. And, and unfortunately, I feel like that has not been the case. So um, that is hopefully something that is changing now. And hopefully with – unfortunately, it's changed so much over the past year that it's hurt the overall, again, results of the, the, um, the U23s and U18s. But, again, that's not the most important thing in my opinion. And I think – that's something we need to um, focus on. Now, we, we've talked a little about the negatives with the U18s. We've talked about their defensive structure and kind of the problems there. Talk about the positives of the U18s, Jeff, and kind of some of their best players and who's been standing out over there. So, so for the under-18s, um, the, the, there's a few standout players. Um, certainly, um, I, I've seen quite a bit of a guy called Matty Mallon. Now, Matty Mallon is a quite tall right back. Um, we seem to be, quite, ironically, quite well off at youth levels with right backs, um, and yet we struggle uh, for cover for um, Seamus Coleman, which 
begs a, a real question, I guess. Um, but, but this Matty Mallon, um, so he's played every minute of every game that uh, the under-18s have had this this season. He's the captain of the side. Um, he's I've seen him quite a bit. He's uh, He's been yellow-carded three times, so he's a, a wholehearted character, um, safe to say. Uh, I think he's stronger. He, he's one that perhaps looks like a man already. He's only 17, but he, he's physically capable, I think, of... Uh, stepping up already. I think he's played a game or two for the under-23s. So I think certainly Matty Mallon. There's a a boy called, uh, who signed professional terms uh, not so long ago actually, called Jensen Metcalf, who's uh, quite a tall centre midfielder. Um, Scored a couple of goals. uh, Seems to be box to box. Uh, Bit of everything uh, I've heard. I haven't seen as much of him, but I've heard that there's really high hopes at the club. For him, and there's probably two or three other players. Um, uh, Jack Tierney seems to be uh, a guy that's coming through. He's a he's a scouser. Uh, he's an Evertonian season ticket holder. Um, so still, um, and he seems to be a really wholehearted player, centre back. Uh, so we got right back, centre back, centre midfield. Uh, seems to be the thing. Uh, Isaac Heath. He's a uh, skillful left winger, scored a couple of goals again when, when I talked about this goals being spread around the team. So I think that there's quite a bit being spread around a team. Uh, it's not all uh, goalkeepers, it's not all centre-backs, it's not all strikers. I think we've got someone within each department that, that's coming through that may be able to make the breakthrough, certainly to the under-23s, and develop. And And I think the interesting thing is, and it stands out for me, is that the ones who perhaps are physically stronger, I, I hark back to the days, and I, I saw this happen, when Wayne Rooney came through, and Wayne Rooney was a man, I think he was born a man, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> but but when he, he came through, he, he hardly played. He played in a youth team, I, I do remember he scored a few wonder goals during that, but he could have played against uh, grown men when he was probably 14. Um, he he, he okay. was that strong. Ross Barkley, uh, I know, uh, I think on a, within our group, we, we've had a discussion about Ross Barkley ourselves. And again, Ross Barkley's a strapping lad. And, and he, he was at that age. And he was even, despite the fact that he had a leg breaker at a young age, he was able to hold his own very quickly. And I think it's those kind of players that um, actually uh, will make the breakthrough rather than perhaps the, the ones who you're waiting to develop physically. So I, I think. I think things are looking quite good. Uh, I think, you know, we, we haven't got 11 players coming through there, but I think we've certainly got four or five that might make the breakthrough and, and it should be happy days. Awesome, awesome. Calvin, anything to add about the U18s? Um, I, I, I just remember uh, when Brand, Marcel Brand, you know, came in as the director of football three years ago, right? I think one of the things he had been charged with, and he said in a couple of interviews as well, is that his primary focus is to sort of, sort of clean out the entire footballing structure in the club, right? And he did place particular emphasis on the youth side as an area of focus for him. And I think it's only now that a lot of these expiring contracts and these overage players have been cleared out of the club, that we can kind of see his fingerprints on, on what he's planning. 
Um, I, I think the, the, the coaching changes that we're getting in the first team is obviously having this knock-on effect because there's always <laughs> this thinking, right, that if, if our first team plays, I don't know, 4-4-2, right, then that is kind of the structure and the, form- and the sort of formulation and tactics that needs to go down the entire club. And with Marco Silva and then uh, Carlo Ancelotti and then now Rafa coming in, that constant change has probably had a bit of a knock-on effect. Yeah. But I think at this point, we are well-placed, right? I think we've got all the... I don't want to call them dead weight because a lot of these kids are 20, 24, 25, and they, they might have a future playing League One, League Two, right? But that's, that's not what we need, right? The under-23s, and the under 18s, they need to be a feeder club for the first team. And at the same time, we also, they also need to be an avenue for the Everton Academy or the scholars. Because at the end of the day, they are scholars, right? These are young boys who are yeah. growing up to be men. And the club has a, I want to call it a moral responsibility to ensure these people, these, they develop into... I don't know, contributing members of society, if you will, right? (laughs) So um, that's all well and good. I like that, right? But they're here at Everton to play football. So if we are not producing footballers that are either fitting in the first team or we are selling at profit to other clubs, then we shouldn't have an academy, right? So it's a little blunt, but I, I think in this era, with how much professionalism is going about and how much... Everything is related to money, right? If we don't have a supply of players, especially with our issues with FFP and with profit loss issues, we, we really need the youth sides to turn into a, a, a very consistent feeder for the first team. And, and it hasn't yet, but I think, Jeff, I, I, I share your optimism. I, I think looking at the under-18 setup, looking at the under-23s, I think we are well-placed for two, three, four years from now. Yeah. I, I'd actually go one stage further, Gino and Calvin. Um, I, I truly believe that in any walk of life and in, in jobs I've done in the past, I've been, lab- I've been given objectives to, to actually bring uh, certain projects in or, or whatever it is that I've been doing in the past. And, I actually think there should be an objective upon uh, Unsworth yeah. and the rest of the academy to bring a few players through to first team level. And if they don't, I'm sorry. Uh, I think that you have to readdress the situation again. Yeah. And maybe, and, and, and I'm not having a, a real go at Unsworth here. I know his heart, he loves the club and, he, and he's, he's into it. But I, I'm, I'm less inclined to support the loyalty that the club seems to be um, ridden with really and uh, I'm, I'm more inclined to get winners into the organisation and if that needed to be a new coach coming in who had bright ideas about developing those and yeah. fast pathing some of those uh, players from uh, under 18 like Matty Mallon for instance I've, I've talked about he's already a, a strapping guy uh, why not you know you know why, why not actually look that radically and say you know either get rid of the academy, as Calvin says, or actually set some clear objectives that you need to fulfill. Otherwise, you might be out on your ear. Yeah, and we've had that conversation on this podcast before, that David Unsworth, while a great coach and while great in a great supporter of the club, great you know representative for the club, um, 
and, and has gotten some great results in winning the PL2 and whatnot, that's not what we need. We need a guy who's going to develop. And I'm not sure that, again, I, I, I'm not sure that David Unsworth is that guy. So let's, you know, as we, as we talk about David Unsworth, let's transition into the U23s. There have been a few standout names amongst the U23, some players that have um, um, kind of stood out in Lewis Dobbin, obviously has been a name that's come up this year, Tyler Onyango, um, and um, obviously Ellis Sims has been down in the U23s um, for, for a couple years now, aside from his loan last season. Uh, talk, can you just, Jeff, tell us a little bit about their season so far and, and kind of what's gone, what's gone on with them? So um, you, you start off with, if I can remember the order you gave me those in, uh, in terms of uh, Lewis Dobbin. So, so Lewis Dobbin, um, again, I've seen him for a couple of years as well, come through, had some really quite nasty injuries uh, before this season, um, but nevertheless uh, got involved with the first team squad in training. Um, some of the pre-season games, I think he started uh, a couple of, of games. Quite nippy. Um, he's not a, a big strapping centre forward. He's about five eight, so he's not got huge upper body strength. Um, he's for me more of a uh, side striker, if you like, not a true winger, but someone who plays off the centre forward. Uh, he, I think, even he would admit, uh, though, in in spite of the bit of hype about. Uh, Lewis Dobbin coming through. He hasn't had a great season. I, I don't think, I, I don't think he's scored this season. And, and this is for a striker. Um, so, I, I think, uh, to, to be perfectly honest, although he's been in and around the team, I think he could do better. Um, and, and it might just be form. It might might be whatever. It might be the the fact that the under 23s have played poorly at times, and he he's been isolated on his own. Uh, but he hasn't had a great time of it. Um, and I know there's been a bit of clamour for uh, Dobbin to maybe get a, a game when Rondon was clearly not up to the mark when he first came along and still isn't. Um, but actually, I don't think Dobbin's the answer either right now. Um, so who else did you say, uh, Gino? Uh, Tyler Onyango and uh, Ellis Sims, of course, who's kind of been named foot around so, there. So Onyango, um, so he's only recently returned from that nasty injury he got in the youth tie yeah, yeah, back yeah. in April. Um, Tyler, he's a, he's a very tall guy, as we know. He carries the ball well. He shields the ball well. Um, I think personally he could make better use of uh, his frame. Um, he's a big strapping guy. What, why, you know, he, he, he doesn't dominate the, the midfield the, the way he perhaps should. Again, I think this is down to coaching. We, we've already had this debate as to whether or not he's getting the right sort of coaching from the team. I personally think he has a, a good chance of making a breakthrough at, at, at some point. He's still regaining his fitness. Um, but uh, put it this way, if you were to say to me, um, right, was he a, a, a natural shoe-in for Dukure uh, being uh, out of the team? I'd say no, he, he's not ready. Um, but I, I think he, he has some attributes there that, that will make him a good player in the future. And um, I, I really hope he does. He, he seems to be a good player. Um, Ellis Sims. Um, I guess I'm a soapbox now, but Ellis Sims. Um, 
So two years ago, just to give you an example, I'm sure some of you will know this, uh, but he, he, um, he scored 32 goals in 21 games as under 18 level. And this is under 18 level. And yeah. we are talking about a six foot three guy who's a man. So <laughs> referring back to my uh, argument earlier on, that that's yeah. a distinct advantage at that level. Um, you can see that scoring 32 goals, as impressive as, is, as it is, um, if you're that much bigger than some of the, the guys you, you, who are trying to defend against you, maybe you will have a good time of it all. Um, but nevertheless, I, I won't bore you with all of season by season. But let's just say in 71, I worked this out before, 71 games between the under-18s, the under-23s, and being on loan at Blackpool uh, last, last season for a few months, in 71 games, he scored 58 goals. That's outstanding. <laughs> it's a that, lot of that goals. <laughs> sh- that shouts out at you. This boy can finish. He can put the ball in the back of the net. And what have we been crying out for this season at first team level? <laughs> Someone who perhaps, especially in a counter-attacking team, uh, which is his real yeah. strength. His strength yeah. is getting onto through yeah. balls and running at players, getting into the box and unerringly finishing. He, he tends to hit the ball low into the corners. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a great finisher. It annoys me with Ellis Sims. Yeah. It annoys me a lot that we have someone who's a natural goal scorer at any level that actually is yeah. now out of contract in the summer, unbelievably. Incredible, um, yeah. Uh, and yes, hasn't got a clear pathway, isn't given a chance. I don't think he's the finished article. I, I really don't. But yeah. I think he, he no. has so much, uh, so many different attributes that he surely just needs good coaching. And, and you know, Duncan Ferguson, for instance, top striker in, in his day, um, made a massive improvement with Romelu Lukaku uh, a few years back, made, made him into a much better player holding the ball up. Uh, than he was when he first arrived at Everson. Surely someone, uh, and, and this is where they maybe need a specialist striker coach, surely someone can develop that guy into the, the talent that he should be, and he should be in Everson's first team. Uh, I, I, I agree entirely that he's not absolutely ready yet. You know, there are things, there are some rough things around his game, but he knows where the back of the net is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, well, it, I'll ask you this question, and it can be, you know, just a quick answer, but where should he be right now? Because he's kind of stuck in purgatory at Everton. He's not really a U23 <laughs> player. He's not really a first-team player. Is, is he sat on the bench? I mean, where, would, where should he be right now? I, I would certainly have him on the bench right now. Um, I, I, even uh, if Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin were both back playing, I'd have Sims on the bench rather than, yeah. and, and it's not just rather than Salomon Rondon, but I would have him on the bench because he's a proper striker. Yeah. He, he's got youth on his side. I think sending him out, sending him out on loan again, it, it might, it seems a bit of a cop-out, a bit of an easy answer to me. Um, I, I would certainly, if, if you're even considering doing that, I hope the club tie him down to a longer contract yeah, so that yeah, we, yeah. we can at least have a yeah, resale sorry. value on the guy. Yeah. Um, but, but actually, um, I, I'm not sure, uh, and I actually live in Blackpool now, um, and it, it's, I know there's a, a big clamour amongst the locals here, that if only they had Ellis Sims back and, uh, at mm. championship level now, and that they really firmly believe in him, 
Um, but yeah. but actually, uh, I I think he should be on a bench. I I think he should remain with the club and have some belief shown in him the same way Gordon has had that belief shown in him and he's responded yeah, yeah. positively. Yeah. And if he doesn't make it, fine. But mm-hmm. there, there just seems to be, there doesn't seem to be a plan. Uh, and that's, that's the most annoying thing for me with, uh, with Sims yeah. is that there doesn't seem to be a plan. If they don't think he's good enough, and we don't see everything, of course. We don't yeah. know whether he listens to the coaching. There could be a, a dozens of things that we don't uh-huh. know. Right. Fine. Get rid of him. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. I think, um, I mean, you talk about a type of striker that gets in the end of through balls. We really don't have that. We definitely don't have it in Rondon. And Dominic Calvert-Lewin is very much a hold-up type of player. Gets ahead on the ball and crosses, um, but doesn't really have that. I mean, he has pace, but doesn't have that. He doesn't really have that instinct to find the holes in the defense and and, and run for a through ball and and kind of stick on that last defender and 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 I guess kind of in a way that Jamie Vardy does for Leicester, kind of get get on those through balls. So I I agree. I think he should be on the bench. I think he should be training with the first team every single week. Um, but again, it goes back to that thing. How old is he now? He's got to be twenty one. He's 20, 20, okay. He's 21 in January. He's but, 20. He's... Uh, ju- just one last reference to yesteryear, and then uh, I'll, I'll stop on the, on the history, uh, <laughs> is Gary Lineker, right? Now, Gary uh-huh. Lineker, for those of you with long <laughs> memories, was a great finisher. He was a rubbish footballer. Yep. Uh, and he, he played for Everson for a year, but he, he, he couldn't pass the ball. He, his hold of play was not, not great. Yeah. Um, he, he, his layoffs... But you put the ball in the penalty box, he came alive. That's yeah. Sims. Yeah, no, no, that's a great point. And, and just going back to our conversation before, 20, 21 years old, these are players that should be getting chances or opportunities to train and play with the first team. And we're still not seeing that that much. Again, it, it also speaks volumes that we're not seeing that, especially with the lack of depth that we had. And we've seen how, how uh, much that is over the past, over the past uh, few weeks. But um, just to kind of wrap up the U23 talk, any other players that come to mind, any players that really have that senior team ability or the ability to get to that point um, that we should be really paying attention to? Yeah, I'd I'd just call out one. I could call out a few, but in the the interest of of time, um, I I would call out Charlie Whittaker. So so Charlie Whittaker is is a young lad. He's not had a great season either. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, and I think a bit like Dobbin, I think he's been affected by the malaise within the, the team and the setup and the results not going no way. These are still young boys, don't forget. Um, but uh, Charlie Whittaker, he's like a second striker. Uh, I wouldn't refer to him as a midfield player. I wouldn't yeah. refer to him as an out-and-out centre-forward, and he's certainly not a winger. But he, he sort of sits in that little pocket behind a main striker, and he makes things happen. He's got great vision. He can uh, he can control the ball really well. Uh, I think yeah. his his touch is there. He's got vision and he's got a bit of fizz about him. So so he he will see things that others maybe don't see early enough. I I think he's at, at the last game I saw him play. He seemed to be a bit more like himself. Um, he'd been dropped to the bench in the under 23s, and uh, I think he, he he maybe sulked a little bit. Um, but I think now he's on the way back. And again, he's, he's not particularly big, but um, I, I think he, he's someone that regardless of his size, he's about 5'8", and he's not particularly 
uh, tough looking. I, I, I think, nevertheless, I, I think he's someone that could actually make a breakthrough. Um, I, I like the kid. Would be nice to have a player like that. I feel like that's a position we're kind of missing right now, especially in those in the attacking third when we're really in need of a goal. That's the type of player we could really use right now. So, so looking forward to seeing how he can develop. Calvin, anything to really add to the U23 discussion? No, no, I think Jeff's pretty much covered it, right? Uh, Nailed it down, yeah. I think we've talked about the purpose of the team. I think we've talked about who's coming through. Um, I think it's a good segue to talk about what should the club be doing come January. Absolutely. Let's take a quick, another quick break, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into like, a little transfer talk to wrap this thing up. All right, we're back, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the transfer window coming up, January transfer window. Uh, still a little bit away, a month and a half about, but I think it's something we got to start focusing on. And Jeff did a pretty good piece um, on that January transfer window where Everton should be looking. So, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that piece is about and kind of your thought process behind everything. So um, I was going to write it anyway, but um, I'd seen another article come out and a few suggestions from other sources about perhaps there being quite wholesale changes uh, around the club, um, both at um, first team level and maybe at that under, under the first team level as well. And that players from all parts of the, the, the first team and under 23s might be going out on loan. Um, now, for, for me, loans have the, the, the role in life. We, we've, we've seen certain things like Moise Keane has doubled his value by going out to PSG last season, uh, thankfully, and, and we'll get some um, money back on him, which is, which is really good. But I, I think my, my main concern was, uh, and it, it, th- this was only rumour and speculation, of course, we're, we're all, we all have our own opinions, um, we, we've already got a small first-team squad. We, we've got a, a squad of about 24. Several of them are injury-prone uh, or have unfortunately suffered injuries this time round, like uh, Delph is forever on the bench but has come through really good in the last couple of games. Uh, DCL, uh, Gomez, each of those has missed eight or nine games this season through injury. Richie, uh, Mina, Gabamin. They've all missed five at least. Decore's missed three, though it feels like 33. Um, so I think with all of those players being missing and, you know, there's likely to be some recurrence of those injuries. Um, I, I think it's what it's proved to us is the shadow squad where you bring uh, Holgate in, you bring Rondon in, Awobi in. It isn't good enough. And and I think there has to be a balance is my point on this. So rather than wholesale changes, which financial fair play probably won't allow anyway, um, I I think that we really need to look at uh, doing things more carefully and strategically in how we actually move players along and maybe loan a couple out if we can bring other players in. But if we can't bring other players in, we don't want to be in a worse position than we are already. Uh, we, no, we, yeah. we definitely don't. And, uh, and I think that's uh, the, the main concern for, for me, really. So um, I'm not saying that it's better to almost persevere with what we've got because um, that, that won't do the trick and it won't please many Abertonians. But um, I, I think, uh, think that the loans out, um, we, we need to think about really carefully. We're short on numbers as it is. Yeah, I think um, 
you know, the, 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 the point is there needs to be a plan. There hasn't been a plan for five years or three years. Whenever Marcel Brands came in, he was supposed to implement the plan and there hasn't really been a plan. So that's been a big part of, of our transfers and why we've kind of, we're put in the position we're in right now. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, I think that these, um, you know, I, I think we should be looking in the market for players that are 26, 27 or one or under mm. any of these 30 year old, 31 year old quick fixes is not clearly not working. If we've tried it for five years, it's not working. There's no sense in spending the money, which will be inevitably an inflated price because it is January on players who are going to stick around, maybe be there for a year or two or be fully focused for a year or two and get their money and then be out. Um, need to start focusing on the development. I think you're absolutely right. I think we need to get player. We need to, if we're going to get players out, we need to get players in as well. Um, we can't be in the a worse position than we are now. We need to make sure that we are in a better position than we are now, even if it means um, just not making any moves at all. So, um, Calvin, your thoughts on, on the January transfer window. So, uh, you know, a cu- couple of, uh, I guess, reality check type things, right? Uh, and, and like you said, Jeff, I think Evertonians are not going to be happy about this, but we do not have the financial wiggle room to make big purchases. I, unless we move a big player out, we're not going to get any uh you know, multiple purchases. I think at best, we might get a couple of players in. I think we should expect to see more loans in. But I, I also think, and again, this is, this is my thinking. I don't know if this is what the club is thinking. We need to have sort of two plans going into January, right? Because pretty much between now and the end of December or when the transfer window starts, we'll end up at the point where we are halfway through the season, Right. So with injuries and the way we have played and keeping all of that in mind, right now we are a mid-table side. If come January 1st, we are still a mid-table side, then I think at that point, our thinking is going to be different than if we were somehow in the top six, right? Because if you're in the top six, then your strategy for the second half of the season is how do we stay in that position to ensure we get Europe next season? Whereas if we are going to be a mid-table side or worse, God forbid, right? Then I think the thinking needs to be that this is a lost season, right? I think we kind of came into the season knowing that with the Rafa appointment, with the not having any money to spend. And then in that case, then it's let's maximize our investments, right? So whether it's getting Ellis Sims out to a championship side that he can start in and play 20 games between January and May, and not just Ellis Sims, Elisins, Onyango, or granted, we think that we're not going to make it to Europe and we won't get relegated. In that case, then give all these kids more first team time at Everton. Let them play some Premier League games, right? Let them, let them play the entire FA Cup, or, you know, however far we get. So I, 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 think, I, I think what's going to happen in January is probably only going to get decided when we get to January. But I think the club will have sort of two tracks that they're thinking of. One is, if we are in the top six or in contention for Europe, then this is what we do. And if we're not in contention, we are just like we are right now, lose one, win one, draw one, and 
just keep that sort of status quo, then mm -hmm. I think at that point, we're going to be thinking about development. We're going to be thinking about not necessarily spending any money so that we can then go spend that money in the summer. Yeah, I think my personal opinion would be is if we are by January 9th or lower, I would say, I mean, obviously not in a relegation battle, but 9th or, you know, ninth between 9th and 13th or whatever, which um, sure. I, I think that that's when we exercise that, you know, kind of don't worry about bringing in new players. Let's develop these younger players, get some players out on loan, whatnot. But I think if we're eighth or higher, we still have a shot at maybe that six, seven spot where we can get a new Europa Conference yeah. League or Europa League. Um, I think that's a point where we should still look forward. And then, of course, any, anywhere higher than that. Um, but um, right now, we're kind of mid-table with the injuries. So I think that when we start to, you know, fingers crossed, we start to get some players back here soon and start to maybe make a sort of run, although this part of the schedule is going to get a bit difficult. Um, you know, maybe we'll be in a better position. But again, I think you're right. January is when we're really going to have to make that decision. Um, positions that you would look at in January if we were to um, be in a position where we're, we're going to be buyers rather than maybe sellers or, or whatnot of the sort. Either, uh, Jeff, or, or Jeff, if you want to go first. So, so, so I, I think for me, um, if, if regardless of whether we're pushing for Europe, which is highly unlikely, or whether we're, we're just wanting to uh, make, make the team a bit better, I, I personally think that our, our weakness is that we don't have um, a clear uh, fullback who can come in. And what I would ideally want is a fullback who can play both right and left fullback, who can cover Coleman, who can cover Lucas Dini and cover them comfortably. Not a fill-in, not someone whose position it isn't normally, that, that they normally are centre-back and, and play out there because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're asked to. Uh, actually, a, a proper traditional uh, person who, who's a fullback who, who knows the game, who can play either side. There's not many of those around, I, I know, but um, I, I think, you know, it, that's the job of the scouting department, surely, to go, go and, and find those guys. And the, the other uh, position, I would think, and it, it, it's his home to us, in spite of what I've said about uh, Andros Townsend doing a, a sterling job coming inside and helping out the midfield by bolstering that, making it more narrow, I think we need somebody else, especially Alan is 30 this year or 31. Um, he, he's certainly, he's not on the way and he's a great player still, but we, we need more competition in there. Gabarmin doesn't seem to be the answer. Um, Tom Davis isn't, um, d doesn't either. You know, good lad, Tom, good Eversonian, but actually, you know, it, are, are we content with that, that level when he comes in? Possibly not. Um, I, I think someone, a, a guy who's actually up for free next season, um, mid-year, whether we got him or not, is uh, Dennis uh, Zakaria, who is from Borussia Mönchengladbach, yes. um, who, who's actually on a free next summer to get him in on a loan uh, to, uh, per, you know, to, to take his contract over from next year would be fantastic. Yeah. We, we need, in other words, I think we need some greater strength in centre-mid I think we can cope with other areas. We can even cope a centre-back. Uh, I know there's a lot of rumours about centre-back and pe people bringing, it in, bringing people in. Actually, you know, we're not that bad at centre-back. We, we've, 
we, we've had a few blips and a few games where they've not played well. But actually, you know, they're not bad, even in spite of what I've said about Holgate. You know, there are worse <laughs> players around. Um, so yeah. th- that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see a fullback who can operate in both positions and a centre mid. Yeah, I, uh, you know, as someone who follows Bruce Mönchengladbach, I, I've seen Zachariah play a lot. I like him a lot. He's only 24 years old. He's going to, uh, he's still got room to develop there. So I, I love that, that shout. And I think in terms of the fullbacks, somebody who primarily plays right back, obviously, I think is, is the goal, um, but can play both because next season, hopefully, I mean, I don't know, I haven't really been following, but hopefully Niels and Kunku is doing something on loan <laughs> so that he can come back, back and kind yeah. of fill in that, that um, backup role over there. Um, and then we'll have the the backup to Seamus or, or maybe even the starter for Seamus next season uh, yeah. kind of filled as well. Calvin, uh, what, do you, what do you got on this? Yeah, I think I just wanted to add on uh, you know, what Jeff said about uh, midfield, right? So I think since Gareth Barry left, we have not actually had a good central defensive midfielder who sits and shields that back line. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our issues with our center back is because of not having that center defensive midfielder, right? Because I, I think it really does expose the, the slower players like the Michael Keynes, right? So we might end up by, if we can find a quality central defensive midfielder, one who sort of sits back and lets Alan and lets Dokure go chase and hunt the ball, I think we'll be a much, much stronger team and we'll see the, the knock-on effect of that on the defense as well, on the yeah. centre-backs being a lot more solid. So whether we're playing a high line or whether we're, we're sitting back and you know, parking the bus, whatever it is, I think that central defensive midfielder position is what we really need to target, right? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I think the gold standard in the Premier League is Declan Rice. Um, I, I don't see us going out and chasing Declan Rice. I don't think we're even in the conversation. Yeah, no. But a player with those characteristics, a player that can do that, I, I think that's of primary importance. Um, and then fullback. I, I think that one's obvious. It just it befuddles the mind that this club has not had a, a plan for, for fullback, and especially right back, right, for, for this long. It just, it, it, it's, it's embarrassing at this point, right? Yeah, I, I think um, also the thing about Barry was he's able to kind of make that transition from defense to offense and kind of be that, you know, kind of, you know, merging piece in the midfield that has been able to do that. And I think, you know, Zachariah can, can be a player that, that can do that. Just looking at his stats as well, just to back it up. He's, you know, passing 90% this season. He's got an assist. He's got a couple goals. So, um, a great shout by you, Jeff. But yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think we've, there's really two positions that definitely need uh, to kind of to be kept an eye on. And I think we've, we've called those out. Um, anything else, guys? Anything else you want to add before we wrap this thing up? Not really, Gino. Just uh, on my, uh, for, for myself, uh, really appreciate coming on this. Enjoyed it. And uh, hope I've been of some use. Yeah, and, and we, we, uh, we appreciate having you on, Calvin, uh, of, of course, uh, or we appreciate you coming on. And Calvin, of course, we appreciate you coming on as well and, 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 and taking out the time. Uh, to you guys out there, thank you for listening. We appreciate all the support. Um, just keep 
following us, download the episodes, however you want to get them on, on whatever pl- podcast platform you listen to, whether it be Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, we're on all of them. Um, leave reviews, tell your friends to listen, whatever, whatever you got to do. Um, we appreciate the support and we will talk to you guys next week.